it's crucial, you know, to share this responsibility with the developers because at the end, as you said, what matters is that the end user is happy and they can use the product. The business is what matters most and the developers are the ones that empower the application. So they are the people that knows the tricky part of the code base. You have to think about, is this feature or this piece of code observable? So can I figure it out from the outside what's going on? So code review here plays a big role. I'm Liz Bong Jones. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I think it's really a strategic, a deep strategic choice. When you start, it's easy to, you know, just install an open source software and uh, try to hack around it. But at some point, even more when you do like monitoring, you have to monitor and take care of your monitoring system. So you kind of go deep on a loop that is not easy to escape from. It's a lot of the same topic we do with hardware at Equinix Metal. Like when, when do you go to cloud? When do you buy your own hardware? So it's a never ending question. I think it really depends on how do you want to approach the problem. It is strategic for you to solve it by yourself because you want to do more with the solution or you are just looking for the end solution and you want it reliable and you want to blame somebody when it doesn't work. So I think that's mainly you know, how do I try to decide when I have to? So it sounds like you're alluding to almost a question of how much do you need to customize it versus how much does the off the shelf thing work for you? Yeah, I think it's definitely one point. I mean, if you want to invest in, if you think that it's, it's a great idea to be able to have your end solution as you want it, because it is good for your team, it's good, it's good for your product, you definitely need the ability to hack the code around you know, the product. But if you just want something that works and you can take the trade-off of making your workflow good enough to work with the solution you are buying, buying is good enough. So what are some of those kind of tipping points for you? What are kind of the signs that you're outgrowing something? Yeah, I mean, I think at some point you definitely need to question about why the request that you, you receive are the one you get. So why, like, if you have a problem with your monitoring system because it's growing too fast and your team keep asking you to add more storage or more hardware, is that a reasonable answer uh, to just add more, like, SSDs or more object store, more capacity, or you have to figure out a different solution for that. And maybe the solution is to stop and uh, just look at the metrics that you are uh, sending and figuring out why they come so heavily because maybe it's a bug. So sometimes you have to stop, even if you buy or if you or if you don't, you just have to stop and look at the context you are in, uh, trying to figure out if it's reasonable for your scale, for your project, for your team uh, or not. Because if it gets too heavy, it becomes really hard to understand because the noise grows so much that it becomes almost useless because you're always looking at signals that are not clear anymore, you lose trust on, on your system and it's, it will be very frustrating for a team. And I've been there, I've been to a team where we had like a, a single 
alert channel on Slack that was always on fire. And at some point I just mute like all of them and nobody cares anymore. And still sometimes I get, you know, requirements maybe from different stakeholders that are not developers then maybe just, you know, they use Slack in a different way or they, they use like the Jira in a different way and they want to know what's going on from their perspective. So they ask me, okay, can you set up like a Slack channel for all the notification? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the answer is always like, it's gonna I mean, you're gonna get so much noise that you won't look at them anymore. But I learned that it really depends on the stakeholders sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you have to stop and, you know, just trying to figure out who is the person that's asking what and if it's reasonable. So now would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm Gianluca. I'm from Italy and I'm from Turin, from, so from the Alps, really close to the Alps. Uh, so I'm a bit sad that this year I won't be able to ski at least at the beginning of the year. But I'm a software engineer, so I started as a developer and I moved to Alps when I learned how many things I was able to do with a few API requests. And now that I I learned that, I started a new journey at Equinix Metal and I work on hardware and data center because I was a bit sad of not knowing uh, a lot of technologies that were be behind those API requests. So now I'm, I'm increasing my visibility on the stack that I know. And yeah, I am an open source enthusiast and contributor. So I, I help projects like Kubernetes or Docker or test containers, mainly Go libraries or Go projects, you know, growing or fixing bugs and trying to keep up with the community. For me, it's a good way to learn uh, when I am, I have the possibility to contribute to a project. So that's mainly, mainly me. That's so much good stuff. And I, I like how you started, you know, as as a developer and you've just sort of gone deeper and deeper down the stack. So can you talk more about like what you work on on the on the hardware side at Equinix? Yeah, as I said, it's completely a new field. I mean, for me, like I started my career as a developer like eight years ago and Amazon was already big and there. So cloud providers for me are the way to go when it comes to uh, provisioning software. So at some point I had the opportunity to to start to look at this problem in a different way. And currently I'm working at Tinkerbell. That is a project that we uh, use internally to provision our data centers uh, in, a, in you know, a handless way, so without having to touch them all the time. So I have to say, I discovered that there are no people running a data center with USB sticks and installing the operating system. So I thought it was that the case, but it's all automatic. So it's different. And Tinkerbell is open source, right? I think I was on a live stream with Amy Toby uh, working on the Tinkerbell source code a couple of months ago. Yeah, it's open source and we recently joined the CNCF uh, as a sandbox project. And yeah, I'm very excited for that because to me it looks like the missing layer in the CNCF landscape. We have a lot of tools that we can use to build monitoring solution or uh, identity and authorization access or orchestrator. But managing hardware in the cloud landscape is something that wasn't that clear Right, exactly, because a lot of people have been using public cloud providers, but for people that want to roll their own private cloud, there hasn't been a CNCF project to handle the hardware wrangling. That's really exciting. Yeah, that's what we do. And there is a lot to learn from me, so I share a lot on Twitter. So it's my journey is there, learning in public, let's say. Yeah, and we'll be sure to put a link to your Twitter bio in the show notes. So I'm curious how you got so interested in observability from like a hardware perspective, like connect those dots for us. 
I mean, yeah, I definitely missed a big chunk of my career during my presentation because before joining uh, Equinix Metana, I used to work for Influx Data. That is a company that developed a time series database. And that's where I learned way more about what it means like monitoring a system or what it means to treat uh, time series databases as a first citizen uh, in a stack. So that's, that's where I learned all the stuff that we were probably taught today. But to tell you about the bridge between observability and hardware, uh, I think something really good that we do at Equinix is like the logistic, like build quickly data centers and finding hardwares and knowing where it is, where it's hooked, all the switches and the cables, all those stuff in my mind, pictures as a trace, because, you know, you have to slice and dice and see where the package is going or you know, all the interconnection between the servers. And a lot of those end up as a trace. So, uh, yeah, I keep that in mind, even if I'm not in the time series. Yeah, I remember the first time that I and other teammates who were at Google Cloud um, started looking at data center provisioning and data center turn up and visualizing those as traces. It was a very eye-opening moment of, wait a second, it's taking three months to do what? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, the trace gets very long. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was really cool to see this firsthand when Liz, you were starting to roll out um, Graviton 2 for us, and Amazon actually ran out of capacity of the Graviton 2 instances. And so it's like, this is something I've never thought about before because I've never, this is the first time I've been on a team where we're using like bleeding edge hardware. And so, like, that back and forth conversation with the Amazon support to just like make sure we got the hardware we needed to, to scale up in, in time was, was really cool and, and something that maybe like the average team doesn't have to think about but when when hardware is is you know it's a bottleneck for you that's that's really important to be able to think about yeah it's all real physical processes mm -hmm. and there's there's somebody at the other end like plugging in wires and slinging servers on racks so it's very exciting to get visibility into that yeah so you mentioned your earlier work at InfluxDB, kind of how much performance engineering and tuning were you doing? Like how are you measuring the results of your software engineering on InfluxDB? Yeah, I mean, I joined as a, a SRE when we started to consolidate the current SaaS software we uh, had, so let's call it version one. And after after a few months, we started to plan the version two. This is the one that is currently running today. And we also had the opportunity to heavily be the, the user of our project. That is not something, you know, that obvious when you start uh, a new SaaS because you are scared about all the new unknown that you will uh, that you will discover. So the way we monitor the system was uh, with InfluxDB itself. So we deliver a bunch of InfluxDBs that were our monitoring system, and we had like agents running on all the servers that were mainly monitoring the amount of points that every customer were sending and the amount of reads. The, the data point was the unit of working there more than like CPUs and uh, memory. Right, exactly, right? Like it's about the critical business metrics and the critical user journeys, right? Like that's what matters and not necessarily, as you were saying, CPU realization. That's really cool. And also kind of like who watches the watchers, right? Like who observes your observability system? That's definitely something we learned in the hard way. I mean, at the beginning, we were relying way more on logs 
I remember when, when I joined, we were using paper trails. It's like a lot more a traditional way of doing monitoring, even if we were the one writing the new age of monitoring back then. But yeah, when as soon as we did the transition with my background as a developer and not as an operation person, uh, I kind of uh, saw the struggling of my colleagues trying to make the application speaking a language that was understandable. And it was a pleasure to see that transition happening in the in, in my teammates and myself. What you said just now, the speaking a language that's like understandable, it reminds me of what our Honeycomb CEO, Christine, was talking about in a talk she just gave at GitHub Universe about like observability for developers and, and teaching teaching production in the language of developers, right? Like Liz said, it's not just speaking CPU utilization and memory pressure and things like that. It's, it's talking like this is this is where in your code that that's being affected and where you can like find answer those where questions and so i think i think there's a lot of value there where we're trying to do a better job of like helping people understand like observability is for developers and it helps everybody to teach prod the language of of your business logic yeah i i think it's it's crucial you know to share this responsibility with the developers because at the end as you as you said what matters is that the end user is happy and they can use the product and usually cpu memory disk are like you know collateral requirements that makes this journey enjoyable but you know the, the business is what matters most and the developers are the ones that empower the application to run in some way so they are the, the people that knows you know the the tricky part of the code base and how it it really speaks. I spoke at conferences and uh, one my title for my talk often was like teaching to your application how to speak because this is what I think a developer should do. It's just you have to think about is this feature or this piece of code observable? So can I figure it out from the outside what's going on? So code review here plays a big role. Mm-hmm. So when did you start getting introduced to this concept of observability, right, as distinct from monitoring? Yeah. So I think you're kind of getting there now. <laughs> I mean, I can't hide myself behind my fingers. It's coming from like, I I met Charity Major a couple of times during conferences and I started to follow the journey of the SCUBA paper back then and the race of Onicom definitely helped me to, you know, consolidate and place some good work explaining, you know, what I had in my mind and what I was seeing uh, around myself. So it's, um, Honeycomb played a good role on my, uh, I think as I, as I always like to, to say when I read books about like how to develop or like architecture layout is like when you read good authors, like writing, you know, they, even if the topics are something that you may see around already, the way they describe it makes it more clear or more solid in your mind. And I think uh, that was important. Right, exactly. Like something finally starts clicking, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you are hands-on, like deep with your head in the problem and you just, you know, see that there is a pattern, but you don't really, you can clearly see it until somebody tells you in a good way that, you know, that's, that's what you're doing. So it was a good time when, when I started reading about observability. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why like, I appreciate having, having people like you going and, and being part of the observability community and, and like, sharing this stuff because like, as much as Liz and Charity and I talk about this, like, the way we say things isn't going to click for everybody, right? Like, the more people who talk about observability in different ways and help promote this stuff, like, the better it is for like, our entire like, tech community. And, and that's what we're in it for, right? Is, like, we're just trying to make 
everyone's like jobs a little bit easier and, and help us like build better systems. And so like, I love when I, when I see people go out and, and give talks and, and, you know, post on Twitter and write blog posts about this stuff because it, it helps everyone to have just more, you know, more voices in the mix. And speaking of blog posts, like we really enjoyed your blog post about kind of instrumenting with varying solutions and piping the data to varying places and seeing how it turned out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important for the ecosystem to be a, a real ecosystem. I mean, we need people because metrics come from everywhere in every form and they go everywhere in different forms. So it's not, nobody can hold them forever. So it's kind of important to build a system that can exchange the information in a common layer. And the work like you are doing with open telemetry is like very good. And it kind of took me a while to handle that because I was coming from, you know, open tracing before, open census, and, you know, the merge kind of made the, you know, at the beginning, the, the ecosystem a bit struggling because, you know, transition is never easy, yeah, even less when the tools that you treat have a life cycle of two years or whatever. But yeah, I think that, no, I can clearly see the end goal and I can wait to be there when, you know, all the system that we install, if they come from open source or from closed source, like who cares that we speak the same language, we'll be able to understand them, not as a black box anymore. If developers do a good job of, you know, instrumenting their tool. So let's talk about that. What does it mean for developers to do a good job instrumenting? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as I say, I, I think collaboration and uh, code review is for sure something that has to be built in the in the culture of, of a team. And if code review is already built, make sure that, you know, looking at how a feature in a code is written and debuggable and observable uh, is another checkpoint that you have to to add in your list of you know important stuff we have to review during a code review session so that's definitely one another is reading logs like if you write logs if you write trace use them it's not the time anymore to you know write print line random lines in standard output and forget about them they have you know traction they have uh, they they need to you know share context to build context so you need to, to be sure that those lines are in the right place in the right format telling the right stuff so you have to use them uh, no matter like not waiting for an outages or waiting for like latency to spike to look at them otherwise you won't be able to to really figure out if it's you or the system yeah like being proactive and, and actually like you know, interacting with the telemetry that you're generating, making sure that the stuff you're sending is meaningful and accurate. And I think it aligns a lot with like how we teach, you know, testing is like you don't want to just write meaningless tests just to get the check mark on the test coverage report. Like you want to write tests that actually test what your code is doing and like all the cases that you care about. And so it's the same thing for instrumentation is like, you know, you don't want to just like spew out junk that you're never going to look at. And and I think a lot of teams, that's exactly what they have is is just, you know, the log stream and, and whatever. And so this is where like you know, having having tools and having data that, that's like structured and, and meaningful encourages people to actually interact with it. You know, it, it yeah. makes a better experience. Yeah, it's this idea of observability driven development and this idea of not treating your logs as a write only uh, data source. Yeah. One question I had for you, John Luca, is like, so InfluxDB had both a SaaS offering and a pure open source offering. Kind of what were some of the major differences that you kind of encountered when you were trying to adapt the open source offering into being a multi-tenant SaaS solution? 
Yeah, I think the the big challenge is the entropy that more users create on the system. So the fact that you are not looking at a single box anymore that you can kind of, you know, figure out in its pattern, but it's like a, you know, mess coming from all over and kind of trying to step like over each other. So that's definitely, it's, it's completely different signal. And uh, when I, in the first version of the SaaS we developed, every customer had its own little cluster. And that was very consuming in terms of like resources because you had your five, six, seven, ten 10 SEQs for every customer with dot balance and whatever. So uh, in terms of resources, it was a, a huge waste. But obviously, you treat every every customer and all the signals has a single one and you know that it's coming and there is no noise, let's say. It's almost like it's way easier to figure out what's going on because it's one customer doing their own stuff. If something changes drastically, it's even a bug or they change their model and you have to figure out if, if it's reasonable or legit or not. Uh, when you start to mix customers and patterns uh, all together, you need a different dimension. So usually you have to, to architecture your code in a way that can represent that dimension. So typically it's the user dimension or the API token dimension. So the troublemaker is the API token, not even the user. Right, which starts getting to the idea of high cardinality. Yeah, that's that's where you know that's where it plays. And when you with tracing, as you you know pointed out, you get to even more like cardinality issue because you have the you know the smallest dimension you can get, like the the single request that is what really at the end all want. So yeah, and this is definitely. I mean, the change in signal, even if the product was the same, was definitely challenging because. InfluxDB was the same, you know, the people were still writing and reading points, but as soon as we started to mix them together in a, in a tenant fashion, the signals as we knew them didn't have much sense anymore. So we had to figure out that new dimension, the user or the API token. Yeah. To, to get back to the, to the previous question, because I think it's nice. Uh, it was nice. Like the, what I think developers should do is also learning about how to architect an application in a way that is for example, traceable. Like, how can you write an application that it's easy to trace? How do you do that? So I'm, you know, I recently, I mean, not that recently anymore. I think it was two years ago. And it's like ages in computing. <laughs> and um, I learned about like reactive planning and how you can do like control loops, almost like the Kubernetes architecture, but much simpler than the old Kubernetes. And that pattern is also very easy to trace because you have an executor that is a central one that takes like plan and steps and actions and executes them. And having a single place for, for the execution of the logic is a very good strategy because when you have to add trace, you just go to the, to the executor part and you add the code there. And for me was when I first instrumented a custom orchestrator we had at the influx when I when I joined, we saw that you know all the AWS requests that were happening. And you know, Amazon has very good limits in terms of how many requests you can throw and fire. So we never really experienced like problems. And also when you develop application like an orchestrator that they have to be safe and controllable, but like being fast is not really the priority there. You add maybe a new request over here, another one over there, and over time you get to like 150 like requests for each provisioning. Mm -hmm. And that times at some point 
gets back and you need to figure it out. And for us, it was very easy to figure out all of those because we had a single place for the execution of the code. And we also used the AWS SDK that luckily for us had a good hook for pre and post like execution of our request. So we just hooked the tracing in there and magically we had visibility on all the system. So having this kind of configuration in mind when you architect a code makes all the difference because if it gets too hard, you won't do it. Totally. And I think like it's a similar way that, you know, both the design at the individual like repository level and then also like the bigger like architecture level, thinking about like what makes things traceable, what makes things modular, what makes things where the context is like easy to promote and 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 send out to your observability tool is it's really important and it helps you write better code. You know, it helps you build better systems. And then also in the process, like like this example, I love this example because it's like, no, there's no one thing that is a really obvious cause of of like latency or or whatever. It's just like growing and growing over time. But when you have good tracing, you know, that answers the where question. Like where do we start to like start to optimize this? And that's a really hard question to answer if you don't have that visibility. So all of these things, all of these goals like tie into each other. And and so that's like a you know, it's worth it. It's worth the effort. And also good DevX and good ergonomics can really help in terms of having, uh, you know, one place to hook in traces or one place to automatically instrument your your API calls Mm -hmm. um, where that really makes a difference to having effective observability rather than saying, you know, we have, you know, this many signals or this many tools instead talking about that developer experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really think we should keep saying that, but it's a developer responsibility to, you know, having all those dots in line. Because definitely operation will may benefit from it, but it's really a developer effort. And I think it's also useful to, you know, build a reinforcing loop around like tracing and stuff like that. Like if you like cloud providers, I keep saying Amazon because I know them, but I'm sure other does that as well. You you get a request ID back as a developer from the API. And if you tell that request ID to the support team, they will be able to, you know, look at your specific request that is failing. And usually the problem will be yourself. So it's never a no AWS fault, it's always your fault. But it's a very good, like it's a reinforcing loop that, that you should have in your mind. If you're doing tracing, share your trace ID with you know your customer. And if your customers are not developer, find a way to sneak the trace ID in their UI and in, in their user experience, in their journey. And you know, build a loop for that. And we made a very interesting stuff at, at Influx back then when we shared a part of our internal metrics with our customer. Mm-hmm. So every, every customer had like a co-monitor. Uh, so it was a dashboard in their chronograph. And in this way, we kind of shared the pain, you know, um, operating their solution. And uh, as a side effect, we had a lot less requests from support because they were able to figure out their problem by themselves. So if, you know, if they were delivering, like sometimes it's very hard to figure out how much you are spamming with your application because you maybe had a new like for loop with a log in there and from there stuff gets crazy. So it's way easier to demand to the destination of your monitoring system, you know, to know what's going on. So we had customers that were delivering a new, maybe like the version two of their application. So they weren't really sure about what was going on and the amount of logs were, or the amount of noise that they were generating was a, like the best metrics they had like at that time. 
Yeah, it's definitely really, really critical to have people share that same view between different teams or between customers and a service provider. That's really like how you get ahead of problems rather than have people complaining afterwards. And it's something I'm really excited about that we're starting to see AWS involvement in open telemetry. And like Yana Dogan talks about, like Liz, you and Yana were on a, a event the other week and, and you were talking about just like that provider observability is something that Charity's talked about a lot too. Whereas like when you're building a platform and people make a request and they don't realize it's like the most inefficient, you know, way to write that like query ever. And so they're like thrashing your system. And so just like having a little bit more visibility into that, you know, the provider, the platform, like offering that visibility helps both sides, right? It helps the client like debug their stuff and it helps the provider like help the client debug their stuff. And so even if we're all, you know, we're, we're, on the the buy side more often than the build side, like we can still be a shared team with the services that we buy and the people who run those, and and it's something that we do at Honeycomb is you know when someone has like a like a, a they're really struggling, we've gone and like helped them debug their instrumentation and stuff, and so I think that relationship is going to just continue being really really important, and and observability like shared observability can help with that. Yeah, you build trust, and that's that's important in a monitoring system. So. Mm-hmm. So as we reach the end of our time, Gianluca, I wanted to ask one question that I don't think we've asked very many other guests, um, because like most of our guests have been from the kind of native English speaking world. What's it been like for you kind of developing the SRE practices and developing the observability practices in the in the Italian community? <laughs> I have a fun story. So a few years ago, like maybe like six, seven, I was working in a company in Italy and I had a colleague that were, you know, I, I use this example because it's very fun. Like we were all together watching, taining logs from a couple of servers and the speed of the logs of the tail were, you know, the argument for how good or, or bad an application were working. If the logs were too fast, we were under pressure. So the application wasn't working well enough. If they were not enough, maybe you know, we weren't getting enough requests, what was broken. So that was our monitoring system back then. And uh, it, I mean, it works. It's definitely, I mean, the, the sharing like experience we spoke like just a few minutes ago wasn't really great because if the, the person who had the knowledge about the pattern of the logs, you know, were, was leaving or, you know, was on holiday, that was a, a really painful situation. So it, it's been a long journey since then. But, you know, I organized a meetup in, in my city that is the CN CF1. It's good to speak about those topics. And we, as I think the people I know from the Italian community are really pragmatic. So they want to see the difference between their current approach, even if they know that it's not the best one, but it works for them and maybe it's good enough. So you really, you have to show them what are you speaking about and how it changed your, your way of, of developing and understanding a system. And with tracing, for example, this way, is, it is very easy. Like you, you start to inject the library and you trace a bunch of like controllers or API requests and you can show, you know, the difference in the approach and this helps a lot. So from my experience, like that was a great way to start speaking about observability. And that's probably because I, I'm a developer. So for me, it's easier to open the code base and dig into that. But, you know, having the opportunity to look at their issue in the code and tell them, okay, try to put a trace there or try to change this log and try to, you know, make it more verbose or verbose in the right way, let's say. And uh, so those small stuff like had a huge impact for me. 
Yeah, I can definitely imagine that if this is the first time that you are seeing a case study or a demonstration of value from someone in your community who speaks your language, that it can be really, really powerful. Yeah, no, that, that's true. We need like we need KubeCon, we need SRDCon, all those, you know, to learn how stuff should be done. But at some point, we need we need a few layers of translation to get to, you know, where sometimes like the you know the struggles are. Well, thank you for all your like awesome advocacy work in the community. Like you, you, you're a prolific like blogger and, and you're involved in all these projects and organizing a meetup. Like it's, it's really, really cool to see all of that. So thank you for taking the time to, to join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I mean, as I, it's easy to, you know, to write stuff or share what I do for me because it's a way for, you know, learn and double check that I'm doing something that is useful. But it's also good to hear that it's it's going well and people are enjoying my my work or the outcome of my you know struggle. So thank you for that. Yeah, we appreciate it very much. Thank you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.